This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is Exactly Right. This is The Fall Line. Welcome to our final episode of Season 1.5, where we answer listener questions that have been submitted throughout the season. We'll answer questions about the case of Monica and Michael Bennett and the case of Jeanette and Danette Milbrook, who we covered in Season 1. We'll also have some news about our next season and about CrimeCon. First, though, we wanted to touch on the discussion of domestic abuse that has pervaded this season and to offer some avenues of support for those who might need it. If you're in the U.S. and you need help, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you're in another country, check our show notes. We've provided contact info for several groups that serve persons in violent relationships or families who are experiencing abuse. Many of you have reached out to us with specific questions about what the Glynn County Police Department may or may not have pursued in relation to Monica and Michael's case. We'll address one of these questions on the show, but the larger, more general response is this. Mostly, there's no way for us to know. George's open record laws are conservative, and an open case investigation's transparency is completely up to the agency who's pursuing it. In the case of Monica and Michael, Glynn County has declined to speak with us directly, though they do keep up a dialogue with the family, and they're responsive to their queries. So there's a lot that we can't answer about the specifics of their investigation. We did reach out to our friend J. Ryan Green, private investigator and host of the podcast Gone at 21. We hope that he'll help explain some of the specifics. As a former member of law enforcement, he has a full understanding of how the police might approach the case, and he can also comment on the original 1989 molestation allegation. Plus, he can expand on how he might begin an investigation into Monica and Michael's case. We're so pleased to have him join us for this episode. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners, Ryan? Please tell us a bit about your background, your current profession, and your podcast, Gone at 21. My name is J. Ryan Green. I'm a former law enforcement detective from Florida. I have run several investigative and security companies before opening my own private investigation agency. I'm also the host of the podcast Gone at 21, which chronicles my investigation into the death of Caitlin Markham. As a former law enforcement officer, do you have a sense of how Monica and Michael's case would have been investigated, if at all, in 1989? In 1989, a runaway case seemed to be as serious as the complainant or the parent made it out to be. This was the case in the mid-90s as well. The investigation of a runaway was much more lax back then for sure. Now, that's only if the law enforcement officer had the opinion that the case was a runaway and not an abduction. 
Parents and siblings are usually who law enforcement get those cues from. Runaways usually leave after an altercation or an argument with a parent or sibling. And most of the time, they will tell the parents or their brother or sister that they are going to leave because they are unhappy. I have investigated many of these cases, and most of the time, the minor will threaten to run away before doing so, which is not consistent with an abduction. An investigator is going to look at any reports that have to do with Monica or Michael. And if they look close enough, or if they even looked at history of reports, they would find Monica's mother's statement that she told the police when Monica and her sister were taken to the police department by a school employee when Monica Uh, made the claim that her stepdad was making sexual advances towards her. Now, this was probably similar to what she told the police when Monica and Michael went missing. So comments made by the parents can be a significant factor in how runaway cases were investigated back then and sometimes in some jurisdictions today. And if you don't remember what she said, she said that uh, the reason Monica was making the claims was because she didn't want to be in the home. She wanted to go run off with a boy. How do you think such a report would be treated now? Would the report of runaway be taken at face value or would the procedure be different? I believe not only the investigation into Monica and Michael's disappearance Uh, would have been investigated more in depth in present day. I also believe Monica's claim that her stepdad was making sexual advances or trying to initiate sexual activity would have been much more than talking to her mom or taking her mom's word that Monica wasn't happy in the home because she wanted to go be with a boy. Now, Interviews with siblings, collection of clothing, and possibly other articles uh, would be taken and processed. The case was reclassified in the early 2000s, though no one outside of law enforcement is sure why. This is also when the GBI became involved. Do you have any sense as to what might lead a case to be reclassified as endangered missing? Would it be new information or simply a sign of the times? Yeah, the reclassification of the case could have been due to new information or information not known at the time of Monica and Michael's disappearance that may have been revealed later on, and that information justified the reclassification. It also could have been the GBI reclassified the case due to Monica and Michael being gone so long without reaching out to family or friends. For a 14 and 15 year old to be gone several days now would be classified as missing endangered and most likely should have been back then if it was properly investigated or at least treated a little more seriously than your average runaway case. My problem with this scenario is why would Michael tag along if Monica left to be with her boyfriend? And why would Monica want Michael tagging along? I'm sure the first investigation involving the school was documented by the police, so a quick name check should have shown the investigator the allegations 
Monica was claiming against her stepdad, or after he obtained the report, it would have shown that. He would have had that information. And at that point, siblings and friends of Monica and Michael would have been interviewed. The testing of apartments and vehicles would would have commenced. Uh, It would have been a totally different beast than a runaway case. Or it should have been. But like I said earlier, the parents or parent obviously set the tone in this case for the investigation. And I can't see a full investigation not happening if the claims Monica made to the school were known to the detective investigating the disappearance. If you were investigating this case, what would be your approach? If you could gain access to the former Heritage Apartments unit, would you feel it worthwhile to investigate it further? If I were investigating this case as a detective, getting the report the next day, in this case, there should have been a report of the allegations Monica made about John. After finding any suspicious reports involving any of the parties involved, I'm going to talk to everyone in that report, not only about the incident, but the family dynamics, which will lead me to other siblings and aunts and uncles that can give me information. I would re-interview Jane and John separately and ask both to take polygraphs. Let me say this. Some people don't like the use of polygraphs, but they are a good tool for investigators. I would ask John if I could look through his apartment and vehicle. If so, I would search for stains, signs of struggle or violence, personal items. Now, this would be the next day. Um, Items belonging to Monica or Michael. Anything suspicious or incriminating. If I find something, then processing would come next. If John declines to allow me to search or process, I would take all statements and timeline discrepancies along with old reports to the judge for a warrant to be issued for processing of John's apartment and vehicle. Hopefully, the statements made by the siblings, the timeline discrepancies, and other family members placing Monica and Michael with John last and during the time frame he said he was somewhere else, will be enough cause for a warrant. Until I get that warrant, I would get permission from my superior, sergeant usually in this case, to have another detective place outside John's apartment to watch his every move, including follow him if he left. Now, I don't care if he sees the detective watching him or following him. If he knows he is being watched, it may deter the dumping or destruction of evidence. If a warrant is denied, further investigation will have to be done. Listening to what Monica and Michael's aunt said last episode appears not even close to what John says. So the timeline is very important especially in John's case. As far as John's apartment being processed now, unless there was substantial bleeding or fluid loss that is in the subfloor, I don't think it would be of any relevance after 28 years. 
Apartment complexes change the carpet every couple of years. Painting is also something that is very common after old residents move out. I don't see any evidence being on the surface areas. Could evidence be underneath in the subfloor? Possibly, but the chances of finding it are pretty small. I believe John's vehicle, if it's still around, would be the better bet. Even if it's sitting in a junkyard, there should be or should have been an effort to track it down already. We've had a lot of trouble tracking down a few key people who are potentially important interviewees, but who are only known by nicknames or first names. How would you go about approaching such a search, especially when the parties in question were minors in 1989? I have tracked down a lot of people with yearbooks. People only known by a nickname or just their first name, but someone knows what they look like. Yearbooks work wonders if he or she went to the same school. If you're looking for someone and you don't know where they went to school but have an address where they lived uh, during a certain time period, neighbors who lived there for a long time and still live there sometimes can be of assistance, landlords have helped in some of my cases. If it's the parents' info, it can also lead to their child uh, if if they were a juvenile at that time. If they lived in an apartment complex, then you would probably have to get a subpoena, and that would only help if the company holds tenant records for 28 years. Not sure many of them do. It takes a lot of digging and a lot of time to find the true identity of somebody that you knew 28 years ago that only had a nickname that you knew him by. If Monica and Michael had run away, could they stay hidden this long? I don't believe Monica and Michael could be gone this long without reaching out to someone in their family. Monica wanted to be an aunt bad. If she was alive, you can bet she would have seen that baby by now. Unfortunately, I believe both Monica and Michael are dead. I believe Monica was a victim and Michael was a witness. I believe that the person who was responsible for their disappearance uh, and most likely death was worried because neither one of them were under his control anymore. Both Monica and Michael were living in other households where they were more likely to talk Talk about what happened, what this person was doing. Monica had already brought the police to the house once. Uh, he could be in a lot of trouble, and he knew that. And uh, he took care of the victim and the witness. Most of our listener questions this season have centered on a few key issues. Why John and Jane behaved in a manner that might be viewed as suspicious, what the authorities have pursued, and what we found or not found. We've condensed many of the questions to avoid repetition. A Twitter follower asks, why are Michael and Monica's parents' names omitted? While we want to give Monica and Michael's relatives the chance to speak, we recognize that there will be differing perspectives on the family events, memories, and experiences they all shared. As John and Jane are not participating in the series, assigning pseudonyms and using redactions is the most responsible approach. Other family members gave their express permission to be named in the series, so we made our decision based on that information. Uncle Jake is deceased, 
so we chose to use a pseudonym for him as well. We want to tell these stories fully, but also responsibly. A follow-up question we received from several listeners. Are John and Jane still together? Yes, to our knowledge, John and Jane are still together, and they have been since their move to Alabama. They've had short breakups here and there, but they've never divorced. Listeners also wanted to know about Uncle Jake's connection to the family and whether he maintained it. He did. He stayed close with his brother, and he interacted with them regularly until his death. He also moved to Alabama after Monica and Michael went missing. The same user asks, Were suspicions ever raised because the family left town so soon after Monica and Michael's disappearance? It's hard to know for sure, but we'd offer this. The parents' actions were never under examination because of the very nature of the case, runaways, and the approach that was taken back then, not the active missing child scenario we're used to now. Suspicion only arises when there's someone looking. A Facebook user asks, How sure are we that Monica and Michael disappeared together? Is it possible that their disappearances are coincidental but unrelated? We suppose anything's a possibility, but this one seems very remote. Consider this. Monica and Michael were last seen together very close to the time, and in some versions of the story after, the time John claimed they'd run off. No matter the timeline, there are at most a few hours and at least a few minutes in which they could have separately chosen to disappear. If the disappearances had happened weeks or months apart, maybe. But even then, one would be led to carefully consider the commonalities in terms of risk factors, stressors, and conflict. In an emailed question, a listener asks, have the family ever directly addressed their concerns or suspicions with John and Jane? In interviews with the podcast, the family has stated over and over again that their attempts to talk to John and Jane about Monica and Michael were mostly met with silence. They stated it was almost like an unwritten rule that they just knew not to ask about it. So to our knowledge, no one has directly asked John or Jane if they played a role in the disappearance. But based on John's purported behavior, we can understand why the rest of the family would be hesitant to do so. A Facebook member asks, In 1989, how actively involved was the law enforcement agency in Michael and Monica's case? What are they currently doing in the case? Here we have to infer. What we can say is that all the family members that we spoke to were not interviewed when Monica and Michael disappeared in 89. In fact, they weren't interviewed until the case was reclassified in the early 2000s, and even then, only some of them were. Monica and Michael's maternal grandmother stated that she didn't remember any search efforts, either in the apartment complex or in the woods that surrounded it. This would indicate very little activity in the immediate time after they disappeared. And we assume, based on the details in her statement, that there weren't any searches in the 2000s either. Now? Who knows? We have the sense that the case is active, but we aren't privy to what they've chosen to do since Larry's class reviewed and was asked to stop reviewing the case. This user also asks if we've tracked down neighbors of John, Monica, and Michael's friends, their guidance counselor, and various other people involved in the siblings' lives. Monica's boyfriends were only remembered by their first names and, in one case, a nickname. We just haven't found them yet. We've reached out to Glynn County alumni groups and are still hoping that, as Jay Ryan suggests, yearbooks might be used to help identify them. 
We're not sure what schools they attended, though. There are a few to choose from. And we know that neither lived in Monica and Michael's immediate neighborhood. Sheila can't remember the name of the guidance counselor. We could get that, but due to mental health confidentiality guidelines, it's unlikely that she'd reveal any information. In every ethical code across mental health licensed disciplines, client confidentiality doesn't expire. In fact, it even holds after a client's death. The rest of the questions relate to season one of the podcast. If you haven't listened yet, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. There's more discussion to come. The same Facebook user also has questions about the Millbrook twins. She asks, any updates in the Millbrook twins case? Any identification of the remains in South Carolina? We and Shantae have checked numerous times with Aiken County. The coroner's office reports that they have not yet received results. This wait seems long, and there may be a backlog. We'll keep you updated. If you want updates on the Millbrook case as it develops, we strongly encourage you to reach out to the Augusta, Georgia, and Aiken, South Carolina media. Another Facebook user asked the following, also in relation to season one, why was Danette and Jeanette's father not questioned? Throughout the years, Danette and Jeanette's father has been consistently uncooperative. We know that Richmond County attempted to contact him at least one time and that he was unhelpful. And we know that as of August 2017, he had not provided the county with DNA. Our understanding is that he's in poor health and he may not have the communication abilities to even talk to them. But again, we hear this filtered through family and not from the man himself. He's never responded to our letters. We're not sure why he encouraged his oldest daughter to change her number rather than talk to the police, or why he insisted that the girls had run off with some man. It's certainly worth pursuing, and we hope that happens. Finally, she asks, did Richmond County Sheriff's Office follow through in their promise of doubling the amount of the reward money raised in the Millbrook Twins case? Now, that's an interesting question. Up until this week, today is December 4th, 2017, we thought so. The two businesses who offered rewards and the organizer of the crowdfunded reward followed all of the directions Richmond County provided, and we were told in writing that an announcement would be made after the certified letters of intent were sent. Well, that was October. We queried. Shante Sturgis queried. The press queried, including Renetta DeBose of WJBF. You'll hear more from her later. We were told next week a few times, and then Shantae received some startling news this week, news that was relayed to her via an administrative assistant. The sheriff said that he had never specifically said he would match any reward. The sheriff said that he didn't plan to make any announcements, and if Shantae wanted that, she could do it herself. Shantae was left in tears, and she was mad. We all were and are. We got in touch with local media, and Renetta of WJBF began to pursue the story. The sheriff declined to be interviewed on air. He released a statement that he didn't ever promise a reward, instead stating that his office often released language very generally discussing the possibility of a reward. Shantae was confused by this, as during their meeting, he discussed a specific action plan for relaying this news, two press conferences or announcements. The first would draw attention to the case, and the second would announce the reward. He wanted to facilitate a delay so that anyone who might come forward without the incentive of money, so those who felt strongly enough to immediately approach law enforcement, would have the chance to do so. 
We also received email communication from the sheriff's office regarding how we could submit the certified proof of the reward funds, and that included a short but important sentence, that the reward would be announced after the letters were received. They were sent in mid-October. Maybe the sheriff's office is strapped for cash. That's understandable. Maybe the family has raised more than Richmond expected. Again, it's understandable. Law enforcement is so often underfunded, understaffed, and is most certainly overworked. We can all understand and appreciate that. But why refuse to announce the reward, to assign a Crime Stoppers number, to release press bulletins that might attract the attention of those with information? We don't understand this decision. We're confused by the sheriff's motivation. What's going on in Augusta? This isn't about admitting wrongdoing or apologizing for a past that can't be rewound or anything else. It's simply a relay of information that just might solve a cold case. We spoke to Renetta DeBose about this case. Here's what she had to say. So first, if you could please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about your experience with the Millbrook Twins case. Um, when did you become aware of Jeanette and Danette's disappearance, and how have you been involved since in covering the case? Okay, my name is Renetta DuBose, and I am a weekend anchor reporter for WJBF News Channel 6. That's the ABC station in Augusta, Georgia. And my first introduction to the Jeanette and Danette Millbrook case was reading an Augusta Chronicle article that there was a podcast called The Fall Line that would be detailing the case. And I'm a serious podcaster and, you know, looking for something new to listen to. And um, I thought this would be great because it might be something potentially that I could report on. So I listened to the podcast and I said, okay, I need to do my part in bringing awareness. And so... I did a story on it right after I finished listening, listening to the podcast. It took me about, I don't know, maybe a month or so to get through all the episodes. But after that, I said, all right, I need to help and do my part in getting this out there. So at, after reporting on it, based on the response from your viewing audience, do you have a sense of how many Augustans are aware of the missing twins or, you know, their family story? Do you feel like it's entered the city's consciousness or do you think that most people still haven't heard of the case? I think a few people have heard of the case, but I still feel like the larger, greater Augusta area has not uh, been reminded of the case. Just from talking with people in the community, once I explain to them what's going on and what I've been covering, you know, they might say, oh, I remember that case. But in terms of the attention that some of the other missing person cases have has received re recently, I don't think that it's it's well known in the larger community. In your personal interactions with the community of people who do know about the case, do you get the sense that residents of Augusta care about the family and what's happening to them? From what I've heard from people who have been reminded of the case, I, I believe that they do care. I just think it's one of those things where you have to keep reminding the community. There are so many things going on right now in the Augusta area and the CSRA, so... 
I believe that this community is is just tapped out in terms of, of giving and and whatnot. But um, I don't think it means that they care any less. I just think that that there's a lot going on. So the family seems to have faced some resistance from Richmond County Sheriff's Office at times. Do you feel like there's anything the city and its residents can do to support the family and help turn that sort of resistance into cooperation? Every time I do a story, I see the community come together and demand answers, demand justice. And so I really think it's going to take the family continuing to talk to the media, continuing to keep the twins in the public's minds and hearts and thoughts in order for people to really start talking, possibly calling down to the sheriff's office, you know, getting community stakeholders to do their part. You know, I've seen that with other cases and it worked, but it's really going to take the family to continue talking and and getting people people involved, making them feel like this could be their, their daughters, their niece, their nieces, you know, their sisters, their cousins, and actually doing something about it. I've seen law enforcement and, and people in high positions make changes based on pressure from the community. And I think that's just what it's going to take. And I think in the same breath, I will say that it also takes the community being understanding and giving law enforcement, giving, giving these people in these high places time to do the work that needs to be done. Um, because, you know, a lot of times you only get one shot to really do something. So, you know, giving them the breathing room that they need to do their job is, is key. But I think if the community can stay on top of it and make sure that they don't let it die, then you get the results that you're looking for and ultimately that the family needs for closure. In 1990, this story didn't receive any attention. And now 27 years later, does it surprise you that it's not a national story? I am surprised that it's not a national story and mainly because of the reason that you all brought up during your podcast. This is a strange case where you have two twin girls who were together and then they just vanish into thin air. And you would think maybe that someone would be successful with taking one and not the other. And so because you have twins who go missing, it's strange. And I'm not surprised because we had a a couple of things happening during that time. You had the onset of computers and, and and so life dramatically changed in the 27 years this this case has been going on and so i can see how files were misplaced and and things were updated you know that that sort of happened to a lot of things during that time but it's it's still shocking because the family still lives in the community and it's a strange case you would think that someone would have caught on and said, okay, we still need to work this case. But because of the dramatic change, I mean, we had, you know, the turn of two decades and, and life as we knew it changed. Everything is computer-based, whereas before it wasn't, 
So I'm shocked, but I'm not. So if we could talk about the recent situation with the reward, what can our listeners do to help increase awareness of the twin story and the reward that has been raised? Um, The goal is to help spread the word in Augusta. What do you think is the most efficient way of doing that? I think right now you're doing the right thing, and that's making sure that you get it out in the media, making sure that if if you can, you know, holding holding you know a press conference or, or doing something to let the community know that this money is here, and you're trying to do that with reminding the sheriff that he promised to hold this press conference and make this major announcement. And I think you kind of need the sheriff to do that so that the story can have a little bit more weight so that people can pay a little bit more attention to it. Not that they won't if, if the family does it, but when you, when you appear as if you're working in conjunction with law enforcement, it helps ultimately. I think that the listeners have to have buy-in in order to truly give beat down the, the sheriff's door and, and demand answers. Um, I don't think that it's that far removed. You know, you still have people who might be, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s who, who remember this happening and or who grew up here who are now, you know, working adults who would care, who, who now have children, who now have grandchildren and they they care still. And so it's, it's going to take getting community buy-in and keeping their names in the media, keeping their names out there. So as a reporter, we were hoping you might be able to comment on this. Have you ever seen cold cases get solved? And what seems to be a factor in the resolution? If so, would you think it was public awareness or rewards or developments in technology? The very first cold case that I saw in my career as a journalist get solved was a murder investigation from, I believe it was Terre Haute, Indiana. And I'm from Indiana, and I actually have um, a cold case that after I saw that story, I reopened um, with my own family. My grandmother was murdered in Gary, Indiana. And so I looked at this particular case um, in central Indiana that was solved, that was a cold case, and it was solved based on advancements in law enforcement, advancements in technology and the way that they, in forensic evidence and the way that they go about investigating a scene. And I believe it was a matter of using um, DNA on a bed sheet, and they were able to solve this case. And I thought, wow, well, possibly I can reopen my grandmother's cold case from 1984 because this one was in the 80s too, I believe. And so I may have seen a couple of other stories like that, just a handful where because of advancements in forensic evidence and technology, law enforcement was able to crack a cold case. And that's that's all I've seen. And there have only been a handful of cases where I've seen that. But I'm almost sure 
that it came from the family not giving up and continuing to press law enforcement to do something. And so that's just been my experience with with cold cases. People like endings. It's in our nature. And if you're a lover of true crime, well, we like solutions even more. We think a solution in the case of Monica and Michael Bennett is imminently achievable, and Sheila thinks so too. It wasn't easy for her to come on this podcast and share stories she'd prefer to forget, but she and the rest of her family did it anyway, all in hopes of attracting more attention to the case. We hope that she'll get what she keeps asking for, answers and resolution. As for the Milberg twins, there's so much less to go on. We have received important information based on some leads that we followed up, and we've shared it with the appropriate officials. What happens now is up to them. There's a lot happening in Augusta, and law enforcement officers are working overtime in a dozen directions. So, perhaps, a simple announcement can take some of the weight of this case from them and make public awareness the biggest tool in solving the disappearance. What's up next for the fall line? After a few months off for research, we'll be back in May with our most complex story to date, intertwined cases that span decades and that connect right here in Atlanta, Georgia. We hope you'll tune in and that you'll stay subscribed for updates on our past and current seasons. Finally, we plan to attend CrimeCon in Nashville this May, and we hope to meet many of you there. Remember, we have a merch shop through Threadless, which is linked on our website, and we're available and ready to chat with you via email at falllinepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at falllinepodcast, or on Facebook. Our voice line number is 404-590-2975. We'd be incredibly appreciative if you could rate the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Thanks so much for tuning in to hear the stories of George's Missing and for your patience as we learn and work to tell these stories in the most effective way that we can. Fall Line, an investigative podcast focusing on unsolved cases in the Southeast, is back this August with Season 5. This series covers the 1998 disappearance of Shaikimia Pate, an 8-year-old from Unadilla, Georgia. As a little girl, I can remember that uh, Shasha was very energetic and bubbly. Seldom did you see her without a smile. She had a beautiful smile. She, she was just a real bubbly, smart, smart little girl. Shaikimia was excited to spend that Labor Day weekend with her family, starting with attendance of the first high school football game of the season. In their tiny town of Unadilla, Georgia, that was a big event. That Friday afternoon, Shaikimia stepped off her front porch and onto the sidewalks of the street she'd lived on her whole life. She planned to wait outside for a ride from her older sister. She was seen by neighbors, friends, family. Everyone thought she'd made it to see the Dooley County Bobcats play. But she never made it there. And so I thought Swan had took her to the game until 1230 that night when Veronica called me and told me, she called me, she asked me, what's shy with me? And I said, no, nah. I said, you mean you don't know what shy at? 
I called the police, but nobody, he didn't come. And then when he did come, he said she had to be missing 24 hours before they'll go looking for her. Shaikimia Pate vanished right off her own street. Though her disappearance is as mysterious and as arresting as that of Madeline McCann, she has received very little attention. Despite a $20,000 reward and exhaustive work by Shakimia's family, Veronica Pate, her mother, has been left waiting for 21 years. She made an effort to be optimistic that, that Shai would be back. She kept trying to prove that it's going to be all right, leaving the door unlocked, leaving a light on, because Shai Shai coming home. Each hour in the missing person's case matters. So what about a cold case unsolved for decades? Some of the things that we run into working cold cases is that these cases, I mean, they're old and um, people's memory is not what they used to be. Memories fade, people die. Few outside of rural middle Georgia have ever heard of Shikimia Pate. But maybe, with your help, that can change. This season on the fall line from Exactly Right, we work with Shikimia's family, the local sheriff, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to produce detailed coverage of her case and generate new leads. 2019 has seen decades-old cold cases come to a close. And so it's time to give Shikimia's open case and her mother's open door the attention they needed, deserved, years ago. This is The Fall Line. We hope you'll join us on August 7th for Episode 1, September 4th, 1998.